Well, amen. Good morning. It's good to see you on this Lord's Day. I want to encourage you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 1. We're going to be walking through a five-week series, an overview series of sorts through this Old Testament book. If you are new to us, we've been working our way for well over a year and a half now through the book of Luke in the New Testament, going verse by verse, chapter by chapter through Luke. But for the month of May, we're going to pause in Luke, go back to the Old Testament, and do an overview series of this very big book, Isaiah. It's right there, pretty much in the middle of your Bible. Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 1. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you for these gifts that you've given us that our lives may be transformed and you would receive praise. Help us now as we seek to unpack this book and its meaning and its purpose for us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I am a map kind of person. I love to look at a map. Even when I'm not traveling, I like to look at maps. Uh, About every week, multiple times a week, I will be sitting around with my phone looking at Google Maps or Apple Maps, just to keep the diversity there in case some of you get mad because I use Google or not. But uh, Apple Maps, I think, is a little bit better, frankly. But anyway, I'll be looking at those maps, and I'll just be—I'll hear of some city or some place I've never been. I'm like, wonder what that looks like. So I'll just pull it up, and I'll just spend sometimes way too long looking at these maps for no apparent reason. Even when I'm flying somewhere, I like to sit in the window seat so I can look out and try to figure out where I'm at on that route. And so. I like a good map. If you're just one of those people that type in an address and have no idea where you're going, you're losing so much in life. I'm just telling you. Uh, It's very important that you know where you're going, right? You have an idea of, of what the ground looks like from above, specifically on the street level, but also in the big picture level. Well, that's kind of what we're doing this morning and really over the next five weeks. We're pulling up the map and zooming out a bit to kind of get an idea, an understanding of what such a major book like the book of Isaiah, how important it is for us as Christians. Yes, it's very long, it's, it's lengthy, it's 66 chapters, I believe. Uh, and we think through this, this major prophet and major prophet, minor prophets, the reason they're called major prophets is because they're big, the reason they're called minor prophets is because they're smaller, there's really no other reason than that, and so this is a major prophet, lots of material here in Isaiah, and so we want to spend our time over the next five weeks kind of getting the lay of the land and understanding what Isaiah has to teach us. Our starting point this morning, I want you to stay in chapter one, but we're going to start in Isaiah chapter 65. So, Hold your place there, and there's going to be lots of territory covered this morning as we're going to be looking at the first 12 chapters of Isaiah, and I promise we will do it in a timely fashion, but I want to begin in Isaiah chapter 65, verse 17 and following. These are the words of the Lord. Isaiah writes, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy, 
and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. He shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children in calamity for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord." You get to the end of Isaiah and you have a picture of a city that is filled with blessing and peace and joy. It's the new Jerusalem. We get this, 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 this scene, this setting of this joyful, peaceful new Jerusalem and how God's people will be there and enjoy his goodness. But when you contrast Isaiah chapter 65, this scene of the new Jerusalem with the, with, the, with the Jerusalem of Isaiah's day, you will find two very different cities. And so if you go back to chapter one, as we begin to work our way through this book, you will find that the Jerusalem of chapter one, two, three, four, five, and so forth is not the same Jerusalem of Isaiah chapter 65. Two very different cities. The Jerusalem of chapter one is a rebellious city. The Jerusalem of chapter 65 is a righteous city. So the question is, how, how does the Jerusalem of chapter one become the Jerusalem of chapter 65? How does this rebellious people become this righteous place, this righteous people over time? We know from Isaiah's prophecy, as we will soon see, that Judah, God's people in Jerusalem, in that region, in the southern kingdom, primarily Isaiah's writing to, a little bit more about that in a moment. But Judah was far off the mark. They had rebelled in various ways. They were full of idolatry and greed and meaningless worship. Injustices abounded. We see as we begin to make our way through this book, in fact, the very second verse of the book, we find this out. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. Second verse, the first chapter of the prophet Isaiah. So you have this scene, this rebellious people, but then you have this prophecy of a righteous people. How do we get there? The main question Isaiah seeks to answer is just that. How can a holy God 
forgive and restore the very people he charges with rebellion and unfaithfulness. That's what this book is about. How can God in his holiness forgive and restore an unholy, broken, sinful, rebellious people? How in the world can he do that? You see, the main problem Israel faced was this fact that God is holy. It was a problem for them because they were not holy. They were wicked. They were filled with evil and therefore faced judgment. So through these chapters of Isaiah, through this entire book, what we have is a redemption story. And we shouldn't expect anything less than that because Isaiah's very name means the Lord saves. But this redemption story, we need to understand, is rooted in the historical account of God's people. And as we work our way from this rebellious city of chapter one to this righteous city of chapter 65 and 66, we're going to see that it is through the faithfulness of God, the faithfulness of God to his promise that Israel's hope, that Judah's hope, that our hope rests. A bit of context, Isaiah's ministry happened between some, sometime between 750 and 700 BC, give or take, a few years on either end. We know that Israel, the, the people of God as a whole, were, were a divided kingdom. There was a northern kingdom, Israel, and a southern kingdom, Judah. Jerusalem is in Judah, in the southern kingdom, and so a lot of the, the happenings around the covenant people were certainly centered in Judah, in Jerusalem, and we know that Isaiah's ministry, his prophecy, is primarily directed to Judah, the people of God in the southern kingdom. In fact, verse one gives us a bit of context. We see there in chapter one, verse one, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So there you have, right at the beginning, one of the few times you actually have a prophet giving a historical marker of his ministry. We know exactly when he was ministering and to whom he was speaking. It's in this context that Isaiah sees this vision, a vision that would address Judah's present day situation, but one that would ground Judah's hope for the future. This massive book is important for us today because it confronts us with the very same struggles and consoles us with the very same hope. We're gonna divide this series into five weeks. This morning, we're gonna look at the first 12 chapters. And it's in these first 12 chapters that we find really a great overview of all of these important themes that, that fill the grand narrative of scripture. Isaiah one to 12 is really a, a, not only a good overview of the entire book of Isaiah, it's a great overview of the entire book of the Bible Amen. from the beginning to the end. 
You're going to see that here. You're going to see God's holiness, his righteousness, his sovereignty, his power and authority, his warning to his people who are in sin and the judgment that they're going to incur because of their sin. But yet, in the midst of that, there is hope given. There is peace provided. There is atonement promised. And there is joy for the future. And so as we walk through this text this morning, I want to seek to answer three questions Three questions about Judah, and we're going to draw application from, from this for, for, for our sake today. But these three questions, what went wrong? Who could help? And where is their hope? What went wrong? Who can help? And where is hope? We're going to walk through these questions by making some observations. The first observation that we see is Israel's, or excuse me, Judah's exposed failure. We're gonna see an exposed failure in the first five chapters. We're answering this question, what went wrong? Well, you see there, lots went wrong. Isaiah sets the context. Again, in chapter one, verse one, what he's writing and who he's writing to, when he's writing. But then immediately, he moves into the dire situation that Judah was facing. Judah was living in unrepentant rebellion against God. And you see that all throughout these first five chapters. You're going to see it throughout the entire book, but you're going to see it identified specifically here in very graphic ways. The first thing that we see is, is we can kind of summarize their, their, their failures in three, three categories. First of all, you see a national failure. First few verses there in verse two, hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know, my people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. This indictment upon the people of God, the, the nation, this national identity they have, as an entire nation, they have rebelled. It wasn't just a few here and there, it was the entirety of this people. Children who now are rebellious, they have forsaken the, the Lord, we're told. They've despised the Holy One of Israel. This is their problem. They no longer viewed God as holy. They did not view him as holy, nor did they honor him as holy with the way that they lived their lives. We know that Israel, when I say Israel, I'm talking about both the northern and southern kingdoms as a whole. They're divided. We know the northern kingdom is referred to Israel, but Judah so using those somewhat interchangeably right now, but, but as, a, as a whole, we know that God viewed his people as a covenant people and their identity was a national identity. It's unlike any other moment in history. You can't say America is God's chosen people or Uganda or the UK. I mean, Israel had this place in, in history unlike any other past, present or future. They, they had this special relationship with God unlike any other nation. In fact, Genesis 12, verse two, God makes this promise. He says, I will make you a great nation. He says that to Abraham. He says, I will make you a great nation. And at this point, after centuries of residing now in the promised land, there was nothing so great about this people. 
They were a national failure. But number two, they were a religious failure. You pick up in verse 12. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hates. They've become a burden to me for I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you even though you make many prayers. I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. This is God describing their worship. They were a religious failure. In fact, if you go on into chapter two, verses six and following, you see in verse eight, verse seven, their land is filled with silver and gold. There, there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses. There is no end of their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands to what their own fingers have made. They were guilty of idolatry religious failure, they were religious frauds. They may have gone through the motions, they may have showed up at temple worship, but they had no heart connecting, they had no reverence for a holy and righteous God. But not only that, they were a social failure. They experienced the collapse of leadership and social disorder was prominent. You see that in verses 21, Chapter one, verses 21 through 23. Listen to this language. How the faithful city, Jerusalem, how the faithful city has become a whore. She was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless and the widow's cause does not come to them. You see, the leaders were corrupt. They were defrauding the weak in order to line their own pockets with wealth. They were money hungry and they failed to engage in social action in a way that reflected the heart of God, caring for the most vulnerable of society. They weren't doing that, they were greedy. They were only out for themselves. It's further described in much more in chapters three and four how the people oppressed one another and the entire social order seemed to be collapsing around them. The language that the Lord used throughout these chapters is strong language. And brothers and sisters, while they were directed to the people of Judah in this day, I think that they stand as a warning to us today. God takes rebellion against him quite seriously. They had failed to take the holiness of God to heart and as such rebelled as a nation, corrupted their worship and, and, and practicing idolatry, failing to care for their neighbor. The scripture says they despised the Holy One of Israel. But on to number, or excuse me, the second thing that we see, and it's in chapter five. Not only do we see the three failures, we see six woes pronounced. 
They had failed nationally, religiously, and socially, but now you see these woes that are pronounced against Judah. In chapter five, the Lord describes Judah as a vineyard, a vineyard that he had planted. Look at verse one of chapter five. Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it, hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And then you get to the end of chapter five, verse 30, and you see, behold, darkness and distress, the light is darkened by its cloud. You see this this imagery of darkness and distress. So what we see here is the very people God had chosen, the very people God had guided and brought to the promised land, the very people he had fought for, the very ones he had planted himself as a vineyard, were now degenerate in every way possible. He had planted them to be fruitful, to produce grapes, but they were full of wild ones. They lacked proper fruit. We see that that's, that, that reality is further exemplified for us through these six woes, beginning in chapter five, verse eight. Let's walk through these very quickly. He says, woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitants. For 10 acres of vineyard shall be but one bath and a homer of seed shall yield but an ephah. What you see here is this woe to a people, a woe that's being pronounced, a, somewhat of a, a, a hard warning with cursed, with, with this idea of cursing promise behind it, this, this very heavy warning that's provided to the people of God. And the thing that's being highlighted here is how they're motivated by prosperity. That's what's fueling them. They want the big larger houses, have more land and what the Lord is saying, it's gonna do you no good. You see number two, the second woe in verse 11. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute and wine at their feast, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. Therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry. Their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure. And the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down, her revelers and he who exults in her. Man is humbled and each one is brought low and the eyes of the haughty are brought low, but the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. You see that the problem that's that's being highlighted here is that these were a self-indulgent people. They lived for themselves. They, they sought to indulge themselves on many things, including strong drink. They would wake up drinking and go to bed drinking. And that's what, what drove their, their lives. They had no regard for the deeds of the Lord. They were more concerned with sensual pleasure than they were the truth of who God is and what his word said. Third woe. 
Verse 18, what are those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes? They held on to falsehood. You see, in continuing there in verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. They had reversed the moral code. They had, they had reversed what was righteous and now calling that which was evil good. And they weren't just tolerating evil, they were actually affirming it. They justified sin. They weren't just ignoring it. They were justifying it. Verse 21, a fifth woe. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. They were self-confident. They put their hope in themselves. And then you go on in verse 22 and 23. What are those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men and mixing strong drink who acquit the guilty for a bribe and drive the innocent of his right? This picture here of the leaders of, of Judah at their drinking parties, taking bribes for each other so that they continue to get wealthy while neglecting those, the, the vulnerable. This picture of societal corruption. These are the things that exposed, that God's speaking to as, as he's exposing Judah's fruitlessness. The reason they had born wild grapes was because of these kinds of things. And friends, isn't it, isn't it helpful? You think, well, why, why these things? I mean, you, you could keep going. I mean, they, not only that, they, they were full of idolatry. They, they had sought out other kinds of gods and even other kinds of wicked things. But friends, it's, it's helpful to see sin defined and called out. At the very least, it should cause us to do some self-examination, right? You say, God is calling his people to account. He's identifying what was wrong with them and why they were rebellious. He's showing how this was true. You may look at this list and you may think, well, I, I, that's helpful. I don't really struggle with these kinds of things. Maybe you don't struggle with, with seeking out fortune tellers like these did. Maybe when you pull out of Walmart, your, your temptation is not to go get your palm read right there in the corner, but Donut Connection, that's something else. Friends, the point of this is not to justify what you don't struggle with. The, the point of this is that God had saw them in their entirety of, of, of their depravity and was calling them to account. He's saying, this is what rebellion looks like in my people. And it should cause us as God's people today to ask some very important questions of ourselves first. Are we more concerned with prosperity than we are meeting the needs of the vulnerable? Luke's been hitting that one. Are, are we more interested in, in just living without constraints in this world and enjoying the pleasures of this world while completely ignoring the things of God? This, this idea of sensual indulgence with, that comes with a complete loss of spiritual perception? Do we find 
it tempting to reverse the moral code? To not only say, well, I'll ignore that sin, but actually to say, that's actually okay. Is sin, therefore, an accepted way of life? They were self-confident, wise in their own eyes. And is that a temptation for you? To act as if you know better than God does. We could go on and on, not to mention the societal corruption where they neglected so many other needs and loving their neighbor. What we see here, as you make your way through these chapters, chapter after chapter after chapter, is this indictment after indictment after indictment of how God was calling his people to account for their rebellion against him and how that manifests itself in their daily lives. What we see here is that sin is offensive to God. It's offensive to God, especially when it's found among those who profess to be his people. These woes were yet another warning. We see here the horrific nature of sin. We see the people of God as a failed vineyard. Makes me think about the New Testament. One of the benefits of reading Isaiah today is we do have the New Testament. And we can go and we can see how many times the New Testament not only refers back to Isaiah and shows us fulfillment in it, but we can see so many other images there in the New Testament that that really give us a strong foundation on which to stand. It's in the New Testament in John chapter 15, verses one through five, where Jesus, Jesus says of himself, I am the true vine. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. I am the vine, he says, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So we read this this picture of a failed vineyard in Isaiah 5 and we think, okay, how as God's people today, how, how, how as a Christian am I not going to be found as a failed vineyard? Well, the only way that you do that is by looking to and clinging to Christ because he's the true vine. He's the vine that will never fail and if we're going to bear fruit, it's going to be that we're connected to him that our hope is in him and that our righteousness comes from him. We have to look to Jesus and follow him if we're going to be a fruit-bearing vineyard. So you see that their failure is exposed in many different ways and we're just skimming the surface. But I I want you to see number two, a gracious encounter. What is the problem, what went wrong Judah rebelled against God. Their sin is on display in many different ways, but then who is our, who, who is, who's going to help? We see that in this gracious encounter we find in chapter six. It's interesting that it's not until chapter six that we get more of an introduction to Isaiah and his ministry. The book begins really just with a brief context for setting purposes and then immediately into Judah's sin, but here in chapter six, we have a bit of a shift back to Isaiah himself, this historical marker again. Look in verse one, in the year that King Uzziah died, 
So Isaiah is, is documenting when, exactly when, this happened. It's in the year that King Uzziah died, that first king that's mentioned in verse one of chapter one, remember? So the vision of Isaiah, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. So it's the last year of King Uzziah that, that Isaiah now has this experience. We think about the year that King Uzziah died while God's people had enjoyed relative peace under King Uzziah, the first five chapters makes it crystal clear that their spiritual state had greatly deteriorated. And Isaiah would be called as a prophetic witness against Judah to call out their sins and to warn them of God's coming judgment against their sin. But before he could be commissioned to do that, he needed to be in the right before God himself. And so the vision he sees, we, we get to walk with Isaiah into the throne room of God. Listen as I read the first few verses of Isaiah chapter six. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. And Isaiah said, woe is me for I am lost for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king the Lord of hosts. I've, Isaiah is invited to see the Lord. Most people that saw the Lord did not live to tell about it. Isaiah is invited to see the Lord and through him we're able to see what he sees through his record of it. And we see this scene of majesty and glory, the scene of robes and a throne, God sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, an expression of his sovereignty. Surrounded by these angelic beings, the seraphim, who call out to another, holy, holy, holy. This is not just mere repetition, by the way. It's an emphatic way through this Hebrew language of declaring something as really so. So if you repeated something, it would be for emphasis. And now you see the only, the only time a threefold adjective is used in the Old Testament is right here to declare the absolute holiness of God. Holy, holy, holy. Isaiah is confronted with the scene of God's majesty, God's sovereignty, and God's holiness. And he immediately knows he is out of his league. He immediately despairs of his own unholy condition and says, woe is me, for I am lost. The very first words that come out of Isaiah's own lips in this book is this, woe is me. It's interesting that he says that, that he says, woe is me. Do you, do you see what he's doing? 
It's interesting because the phrase that he uses here in chapter six of himself is the same phrase God had pronounced against his people in chapter five, six different times. As he pronounced woes upon the people. So Isaiah is allowed to see the Lord in his only response as he is confronted with the absolute holiness of God is to identify himself with the very people that God was about to judge. Notice, there is no comparing Isaiah with Judah. Notice Isaiah didn't say, well, at least I'm not as bad as they are, right? Isaiah could have said, well, God, you're glorious, but look how bad these people are. I'm not that bad. That's not Isaiah's response. Isaiah's confronted with the holiness of God, and he says, I am that bad. I'm no better than them. That is the same as true for us today. When You can come out pretty well when you start comparing yourselves to other people, but when you stand before God who is holy and righteous, we are all on the same level, friends. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God does not leave Isaiah there. In his kindness, a seraph comes to Isaiah with a coal from the altar, the placed upon his lips. See that in verse six, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal, and then he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. This coal is burning because it's a holy thing. And it comes from the altar, which is a place we know in the Old Testament as a place of sacrifice. It touches his lips, and instead of burning him, it heals him. And Isaiah is told that his sin is atoned for. This is the beauty of this text, which is really the beauty of the entire story of the Bible. Here we have a man who's confronted with the, with the holiness of God, and all he can see is his own sin and unworthiness. And it's at that moment that God, in his unapproachable holiness, is also revealed to be as a God of unmeasured grace. It's at this moment that Isaiah is atoned, that his sin and his guilt is taken away. And then he's given his commission as a prophet. You see that in verses eight and following very quickly. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who shall go for us? Then Isaiah said, here am I, send me. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, Isaiah, how long, O Lord? And he, God said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is failed. The holy seed is its stump. Isaiah is reconciled to God and then he's given a commission to go speak on God's behalf and basically he's saying, go preach to the people 
and they're not gonna listen to you. The more you preach, the more they're gonna not listen to you. Pronounce upon them the judgment that they deserve. That's Isaiah's commission. But that leads us to this third point. Well, if their problem is themselves, their own rebellion against their creator, and if God is the one who can help, then what help does he send? Which leads us to this triumphant promise that we find in chapters 7 through 12. While the ministry of Isaiah would largely be one of warning and judgment, there's a lot of judgment in this book, there is always a thread of hope throughout it. Indeed, we've seen this sprinkled already throughout the early chapters. So far, I've just pulled out the bad stuff that was true of the people. But in the midst of the bad stuff, even in the first five chapters, there's hope. Just just to give you a little hint of that, chapter 1, verse 18, the Lord says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Again, you see in chapter 1, verses 25 through 28, Zion, verse 27, Zion shall be redeemed by justice, and those in in her who repent by righteousness. In chapter 2, 1 through 5, we get this picture of, of what Israel ought to be and what it will one day be. Chapter 4 and verses 2 through 6, you get this glimpse of hope and restoration. There's this theme throughout of a remnant and restoration that will take place. You see in in chapter 6, verse 13, the very last thing, the holy seed is its stump. There's a stump remaining. Judah is trimmed down to a stump. But even through that stump, from that stump will be hope. There's this theme all throughout. In chapter one, you see it there. Though their sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. And you get to all the way to chapter 12 and you you see this this language. Jeremy read for us this morning at the beginning of our service The first two verses, you will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. There's this promise of sins being forgiven, this promise of salvation being granted, restoration, but but how? How does this happen? You see that throughout the next six chapters there through chapters seven through 12 and just two very brief things. The first way that it comes about is through a promised son. You look in chapter seven, we're given another historical marker, aren't we? In the days of Ahaz. So if you go back to chapter one, verse one, Uzziah's dead. We didn't get much about Jotham, but now Jotham's son Ahaz is ruling. So it's in the days of the third king, Ahaz, son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah. Rezin, the king of Syria, 
And Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shakes the wind. So let me just give you a very quick historical context of what's going on. As Judah is wrestling with all of its troubles, with its sin, there is a nation, a people called Assyria, that is in kind of control of the, the region of that part of the world, the, modern, the, the known world at that time. So Assyria is the growing superpower of the day. They're north and a little east of, of Judah. They're growing in power and influence and they're wanting to continue to maximize their, their, their control. They're wanting to, to flex a bit. And so just north of Judah, remember the Northern Kingdom of Israel, they make an alliance with Syria, a smaller country. It's not the same as Assyria. So you have Syria and Israel, the Northern Kingdom, also referred to here as Ephraim. They make an alliance together because they know Assyria is coming. And so they make an alliance to try to, to hold them off. And they've been getting, trying to get Judah to get on board with this alliance and they've said no. King Ahaz knows that he, don't, he doesn't want any part of that and maybe he can even work out a deal with Assyria in the long run. Um, and so you have this, 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 this threat that's coming about. And so what Israel, the Northern Kingdom and Syria decide to do is they're like, well, we're tired of you turning us down. We're gonna actually come and attack you ourselves. And that's what verses one and two are referring to. And Ahaz gets a little shook. He's nervous about all of this threat that's coming his way. You see the heart of Ahaz, verse two, the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And so what happens is the Lord says, all right, Isaiah, go tell Ahaz something. You, you go tell Ahaz, and you see this in verses three through following. Go tell him that Israel, they're not gonna, they're not gonna have, they're not, they're not gonna defeat Judah. They're not gonna defeat the southern kingdom. You see that in verses seven and eight. You go tell Ahaz, the northern, this alliance is not going to, to, to take you captive. It's not going to destroy you. And in fact, if you want proof of that, just ask me for a sign. Now, think about that. How many times have we thought, Lord, if you just give me a sign, I'm on, I'm, I'm in, right? One time in the scripture, the guy gets an opportunity to ask God of any sign he wants. Look at verse 11. The Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as anything you want. Here's a blank check, Ahaz, fill it out. Ask for a sign, a sign that I am for you and that I will protect you. And what does Ahaz do? Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. That sounds pious, but it's really not. He's trusting more in himself and in his resources than he is the Lord. And that's gonna lead the southern kingdom into some very dangerous waters. Judah will be judged. You see that's gonna happen in chapter eight, the coming Assyrian invasion as the Lord brings these Assyrians not only to the northern kingdom, they're gonna press through the northern kingdom and they're gonna come all the way down to the walls of Jerusalem. But it's interesting, the Lord says, if you don't wanna ask me for a sign, I'm gonna give you one anyway. 
Look at verse 13 of chapter seven. And he said, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you may weary, that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Lord says, Ahaz, ask me for a sign and I'll show you that I'm gonna protect you against this threat. Ahaz says, no, thank you. I'm more confident in what I can do than I am in you. And the Lord says, that's fine. I'm gonna give a sign anyway. There's gonna come a son. And his name will be Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so not only do you have this promised son, you, you see a further explanation of what this son would be, of who this son would be in chapter nine as you continue to read. We see that this child would be born, a son would be given in chapter nine, verse six. The government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. This son was promised, but it also led to this promised salvation. God's people would be judged and they would eventually be restored. You see that in chapter 10. You see it specifically in verses 24 and 25, where there would be a remnant that was kept. And that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will be no more, will, excuse me, will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. The remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. For though your people of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed overflowing with righteousness for the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. And so you see that there's this promised remnant that will come to pass. It was meant to be a word of assurance for the people of God looming under this threat of Assyria. It was meant to be a word of warning, but a word of assurance. Listen, Assyria is coming. Bad things are going to happen, but put your hope in the Lord because there will be a remnant there will be salvation. Not only does the Lord promise them of this, this promise of assurance goes well beyond the people of this day as a means of assurance, not only to comfort the people of Judah in their day, but as a promise to all of the people of God at various points of history. This would be a day, this promised son and this promised salvation would be a day when all of God's people would receive all of God's promises. Not only for Judah, but for those who are called from all nations. You see that in chapter 11. In that day, verse 11, in that day the Lord will extend his head yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, from the coastlands of the sea, there will be people from all nations gathered. You see that that is promised. What we find here is despite Judah's wickedness, despite Judah's wicked failure, God's promise would hold. God's promise to have a people for himself would remain and no amount of human rebellion, no world superpower would stop him from sending the one, the promised son who is wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace the one whose throne would never end. Uzziah's reign ended. Ahaz's reign ended. Hezekiah, who's later to come, his reign would end. But this son who's promised, who would bring this salvation, his reign would never end. And so Judah's hope 
is ultimately our hope. And they express this joy. You see this joy that's expressed. When that day happens, when this promise comes to fulfillment, chapter 12, you will say in that day, when you see all of these things come to pass, when God has not only restored you, but that restoration and that, that promise extends beyond Judah to the ends of the earth and all of God's people are able to be brought in, you will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. For though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid for the Lord God is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. They rejoice. They worship. You see that there in chapter 12. See, the book of Isaiah is filled with judgment, but it's also filled with hope. It's filled with warning, but it's filled with redemption. It's a conversion story that shows us the way forward from a rebellious Jerusalem to a righteous one. What went wrong? Judah trusted in everything else except God. They trusted in themselves, they trusted in their wealth, they trusted in their riches, they trusted in other gods. Everyone else but God. Who came to their help? God did. As he remains faithful to his promise. And where can we find hope? By looking to the Lord's promise and resting in his gracious provision, ultimately centered in the promised son who did come who did accomplish all that was needed to secure our citizenship for that heavenly city to come. You see, friends, the reason that our sins, though they are like scarlet, can be white as snow is not because we eventually get our acts together. It's because the promised son would come and he would be the full and lasting sacrifice once and for all. The reason we will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turns away. The reason we'll be able to say that is because this promised king would also be the promised son who would give himself for our sins. It's really the story of Isaiah presents. It's a redemption story. Things were bad, sin was rampant, but God had promised hope and he would accomplish that himself. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for showing us this truth of who you are and your holiness. We thank you, Father, that you've given us the book of Isaiah to help us see, even from times gone by, a reality that was true of your people, a picture of them and their sinfulness and judgment and warning And yet, Father, in the midst of that, you secured them by hope through what you would accomplish through the sending of your Son. Father, we thank you for this word that you've given us. We thank you for this warning. We thank you, Father, that you've given us the opportunity to study your scriptures together and to be reminded of who you are. At the end of the day, it was Israel that that took their eyes off, off of who you truly are. They no longer revered you as holy. They no longer saw you as worthy. And so they rebelled. Father, would you keep our eyes fixed firmly upon the truth of who you are and would you keep our hope rooted in what you've provided for us through Jesus Christ? It's in his name I pray, amen.